I asked the question last week, why was it that Christianity was persecuted? Of all of the groups, of all of the cults and, and various movements that uh, were around in the first century, why was it that the Romans went after the Christians specifically? And the reason that I suggested was that they failed to engage with the imperial cult. They, they failed to honor Caesar as God. The Christians already had a king and a God, and his name was Jesus Christ. And so to acknowledge anybody else uh, in that position was, was blasphemous. They just simply couldn't engage with that. Now, the Christians were happy to acknowledge Caesar as the emperor and to encourage uh, people to, uh, to, to respect his rulership, but to say that his God is a bridge too far. They just simply couldn't get there. Now, early on in their origins, uh, when they were predominantly a Jewish movement, this was okay. There was no one really paid attention to that because everybody knew that the Jews don't worship uh, any other god, and that would have been that they, they're true of them for centuries. They, so long as there was Jews living in Gentile cities, Jews never engaged with any of the cults and any of the festivals or uh, or worship or sacrifice of to these other gods. And that was fine. Everybody knew that the Jews didn't turn up to it and they were happy to give them a pass. Now, bearing in mind that when you don't worship these gods and calamities come to the city, that's the fault of the person that fails to come to the festivals. Now, everybody knew that the Jews didn't come. They realized that it wasn't causing any problems. It was fine. No one was really worried about that. And so whilst ever Christianity was a Jewish movement, the Jews don't worship the emperor we're okay with that. That's fine. The Jews, would, we never expected them to come anyway. The problem happens when you cross over into the Gentile world. When Christians, when Gentiles are becoming Christians, Gentiles who last year were at the festivals, they were the ones worshiping these gods. And now they're suddenly saying, hey, you know, there is no other God but Jesus Christ. And that in fact, all of these other gods are probably demons. Now we've got a problem because you've betrayed the gods you have insulted the gods you've offended them and so you are now actually putting us in danger you're a threat to us because you have betrayed the gods and so this is the issue this is the real problem that's happening in christianity it's happening because of the gentile christians they're the ones who we do expect to turn up because you're one of us or at least so we thought you were so that's the background now to the primary persecution that we find of Christians for the first few centuries. This really goes up to Constantine. The, the persecutions that the Christians face really boils down to this. Now, it was true that Christianity was obscure. Um, it was always seen as a little bit of an obscure sort of group. Uh, and they had some, you know, pretty bizarre beliefs by any standard, but then so did most of the groups. There were some pretty crazy ideas out there. Christians weren't exclusive in just having some seemingly bizarre ideas. But because they were growing and because they did really um, sort of make a name for themselves being so isolationist and, and, and not being engaged with the cults and the imperial cults and all of this, there was always they always did stand out. They were always something of, an, of a strange bunch. And some of their teachings really came in for some criticism, came in for some uh, mockery. Um, so a couple of the key ones, a couple of the uh, more obscure sort of ideas that people had about Christians. Well, first of all, the assumption around Christianity and, and Judaism to an extent, but certainly Christianity, was the idea that they were atheists. Now, it sounds strange to us to say that a Christian is an atheist. That seems to be the very opposite of, of what an atheist is. But in this context where to worship a god means to have a temple, it means to have a priesthood and have a cult attached to the god and have a statue of the god and sacrifices and all of these very visual and very tangible elements to the cult, the Christians didn't have any of that. They didn't have temples or priesthoods or sacrifices or anything. They just met in houses and they talked about philosophical ideas and they worshipped a god that they said was real but was invisible. We couldn't see the god. There's no statue for this god. And so the assumption that people tend to have about Christians is that they're actually atheists. They're, they're not really worshipping 
anything at all. And so that's a very strange thing. You, 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 you say you have a God, but we can't see him. That's a very bizarre idea. Another idea or another sort of accusation that was made about Christians was that they were cannibals. Now, this is one of those cases where uh, you take an idea and you twist it and you sort of make it, you sort of appropriate it to a different sort of understanding. Um, They'd say that the Christians were cannibals because when the Christians met, they talked about eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus. Now, if you don't have any concept of that or, or what that means to the Christians, then your natural assumption will be more literal. And so the assumption was that the Christians were, in fact, cannibals. And, and even more than that, that they were incestuous. Uh, they talked about having love feasts, quote-unquote, with their brothers and sisters. And so they talk about the love they have for their brothers and their sisters and with their family And they said, well, what are you guys doing behind closed doors? You're not doing this stuff in public. You're meeting in people's houses in these private settings. And what's going on behind closed doors? You're having these incestuous relationships while having a meal of flesh and blood. Like this is what is going on here? Uh, And so all of these ideas sort of permeate and sort of spread about what Christianity is. Now, this isn't what led to their persecution, only to say that there was already a bit of a foundation. Christians already stood out as being something of an anomaly. Um, they, they do things very differently and they act very differently to everybody else. Um, there's some couple of great quotes here that I'm going to read for you. And, and they're just some of the presumptions that were getting around about Christians. Now, this is, there was one particular guy by the name of Celsus, and he was a, he's sort of second century, and he's a really um, strong uh, opponent of Christianity. He, re, he actually writes a lot about uh, how bad Christianity is, really sort of in a mocker, mocking way. And so we have evidence of what he said from one of the church fathers, Origen, who wrote uh, literally against Celsus. Uh, and so we know from what... Uh, of, of what Kelsus has said because of Origen's response to um, his accusations. So there's one interesting one here. This is um, Kelsus talking about Jesus and how he uh, perceives the story of Jesus so far as he can tell from what he's heard of about Christianity. So it says, Being born in a certain Jewish village of a poor woman of the country who gained her subsistence by spinning and who was turned out of doors by her husband, a carpenter by trade, because she was convicted of adultery, that after being driven away by her husband and wandering about for a time, she disgracefully gave birth to Jesus, an illegitimate child who, having hired himself out as a servant in Egypt on account of his poverty and having there acquired some miraculous powers on which Egyptians greatly pride themselves, returned to his own country, highly elated on account of them, and by means of these proclaimed himself a god. Now there's a thread of truth in that story. Mary was, in fact, according to the story, she was single. I mean, Jesus was born to a virgin. And as a young child, he went to Egypt and he returned from Egypt still as a young child, but he did perform miracles. I mean, there's a thread of truth in this story, but the way that it's been twisted is a very, um, very, very negative, very pessimistic, cynical way of interpreting the story. This is from Kelsus again, and he's talking now about Uh, the followers of Jesus. So he says that only foolish and low individuals and persons devoid of perception and slaves and women and children of whom the teachers of the divine word wish to make converts. And so it's an attack on Christians that they only go after the really dumb, low status, uneducated people because they're the only ones that are going to be stupid enough and gullible enough to fall for this message, you know, the, and, and, and making the observation that Christianity really didn't take off amongst the educated elites. Uh, and this is always the problem. This is always the uh, issue with Christianity. Well, not so much an issue, but it was always just a truth about Christianity that it was rejected by the educated elites. You know, Paul talks about uh, this message being foolishness to those who are perishing and, and foolishness to, uh, in comparison to the wisdom of the world. 
So this was always true. And so this, again, you, you take in a truth, which is not a, a bad or a good thing, but turning it into a negative. Uh, and this last one was an interesting one. Um, this is from, from Lucian of Samosata. So it's, it's coming out of a play. He's, he's making sort of a, a, a theatrical play, which is a mockery of Christianity. Uh, and so, again, it's talking about Christianity in general. He says, the Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who was introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. You see, these misguided creatures start with a general conviction that they are immortal for all time, which explains the contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion, which is so common amongst them. And then it is, was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers from the moment that they are converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. All this they take quite on faith with the results that they despise all worldly goods alike, regarding them merely as common property. So this is true. There, that is a true element of Christianity. Christianity was uh, a community-based religion. Um, they did give up their goods as a means of helping others within their community. They did these things. This is true. But when it's spun this way, it's just spun as a negative, something that is a mark against who the Christians were. So Christianity, in other words, had always been seen as a strange thing. Again, none of that led to persecution. It was more just mockery of Christianity had its grounding in these sorts of ideas that we're getting around. But that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the fact that Christians were actively persecuted, that there was violence perpetrated against them by the Romans and by the other uh, magistrates of cities for a particular reason. And that was the imperial cult. And that's really what we're here to talk about at the moment. And so Christianity was a threat to the social order. Uh, the gods were the ones who upheld the social order. They were the ones that upheld the well-being of the cities and so to attack those gods or to fail to worship them was a direct threat to that social order. It was treason. And this was a significant problem. This is a serious issue that uh, the Christians presented or a serious challenge that they presented. And so the assumption then is that Christianity was something more than just some sort of religious cult. Uh, that the, Just to say that they were a religious group, well, there were lots of religious groups and none of them were, were, were ever seen as any sort of threat uh, so for Christians, they were different though. There was more to them than just their particular God or the, the way that they uh, do religion. Uh, the Christians really were seen as a political group. In fact, this is actually built into the name. So think the word Christian itself, the, it, it, it was given, it was a name given to them. They didn't come up with this. It was, it was a name given to them originally. And there's, the name itself, Christian, is obviously taken from Christ. They're followers of Jesus Christ. Now, Christ, as we know, is the title given to Jesus. It's not his last name. It's not Jesus Christ's last name. Christ is the title. Um, it, it's, it's Christos. It means anointed one. Now, literally, it means oil. Uh, so, um, you know, if people would say, I, I worship Jesus Christ, and someone who had no idea what they're talking about would say, you worship Jesus, the oily one. That's very strange. Um, I, don't know, I don't know what to make with that. Uh, so you're, you worship Christ, you follow Christ, but the Ianos, so Christianos is the name given to them. That Ianos is in fact a Latin suffix. It's a Latin addition to the Greek Christos. And that Ianos is in fact a political term. Um, it's never attached to the name of a god. It's always attached to the followers of a partisan group. And so when you think about in Mark where it talks about the Herodians, those are the uh, partisans of King Herod. Well, what they're talking about here is that Christians, this Ianos, it designates them as a political partisan group of Jesus Christ. And so in other words, they're seen as a political movement. They're seen as a political group because they have a different king. They're not proclaiming necessarily a different God. Well, they are, but what they're more importantly proclaiming and the thing that gets our attention is that they're proclaiming a different king, one apart from Caesar. And so this is what makes them so problematic. 
And so the Christians are persecuted, and it doesn't take long for this to break out. I want to read, just today we're going to read a few longer passages uh, to give the full context of this. But the first one actually comes about under the Emperor Nero. So in, in the year 64, so only within a few decades of Christianity even being a thing, they're already being persecuted by the emperor, uh, not just some local persecution by some obscure magistrate, but from the top, from the actual king of the world, is actively going after the Christians. Now, the first one, uh, this one under Nero, comes about, Nero had actually burnt Rome down. Um, well, whatever, there was you know, various um, suggestions as to what, uh, why this happened. One suggestion is that Nero wanted some property in Rome, and um, so he thought it'd be easier just to burn the thing down and be easier to buy. Uh, and so whatever the case was, he starts this fire and it just takes off. It spreads through Rome because most of Rome is built of wooden houses, very poorly built wooden houses. And so when you set a fire off in the middle of that, it's not going to take long for all of it to go down. Now, so this fire lasts for about eight days from July 19 to 27 in the year 64 and takes out most of Rome. It's an absolutely devastating event. But when, they, when the fire is finally out and they get the situation back under control, Nero is you know, looking around for a scapegoat. He, he obviously doesn't want to take the blame for it. And so he's looking for somebody that he can lay the blame onto. Uh, and so he picks the Christians out. He's the, he picks out them as being the, uh, the culprits here. And so there's this uh, account of what he does next with that. So this is from Tacitus. He says, But all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor and the propitiations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration uh, was the result of an order. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians, by the populace. So already you can see this popular revulsion of Christianity. Um, for their abominations. What are the abominations? Well, they eat people's flesh and drink blood and they're incestuous and all of these bizarre things. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their centre and become popular. Now, do you notice that they call Christianity a superstition? You've got cult, cultus in the Latin, this idea that you've got a religious group which is a recognised formal organisation. They worship a genuine God. Their cult is a genuinely recognised thing and it's, it's honourable, it's respectable, it fits well with what we do. But anything that's outside of that, something that we can't understand, something that's secretive, something that is uh, suspicious... Well, we call, that's a superstition, and that's certainly how they categorized Christianity. So accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of fire in the city as of hatred against mankind. So this, the Christians were seen uh, as, uh, as hating humanity. They actually were seen as been actively opposed to the well-being of their fellow citizens, again, because they refuse to worship the gods. If you're not doing that, it's because you, you want the worst for us. You're, you, it's misanthropy. It's the, you, you don't want our well-being. And so Christians had that stigma attached to them, which is, as we've seen in previous podcasts, the absolute opposite of what Christianity was, but seen to be hateful towards humanity. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burned, to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. So these are just some of the ways in which Nero ordered these Christians to be murdered, because he could. <laughs> there was nothing that they were going to do about it. And so the reason why he picks Christianity out, he probably recognizes um, a, a weakness in them in that they probably won't fight back. They're very pacifistic in the way that they carry on. But there's also a realization that there's a popular uh, revulsion of Christianity that people aren't going to 
aren't going to question this. They're, they're not going to raise any issues with this because they already don't like the Christians. He can play to that popular perception that Christianity is seen to be working against us anyway. They already seem to be something of a treasonous organisation. And so if I go after them, then no one's going to really care too much about that. In fact, in some cases, they might even celebrate the fact. And so he knows that he's got a free pass to do this. So it's within this persecution that breaks out after 64 that we find the martyrdom of both Peter and Paul. Uh, they're killed, both of them in Rome, during this, this persecution that breaks out. It doesn't just last for a couple of weeks. This thing goes on for a couple of years. Christianity is really, they, they turn against Christianity for quite some time. Now, a short time before this, James had also been executed. So the big three of the early church, James, Peter, and Paul, are all executed within a few years of each other. So James in 62, he's condemned by the Jewish high priests um, for similar reasons, for working against the well-being of the people by promoting Christianity. Um, and then Peter and Paul are both executed in Rome under the Emperor Nero. So this is the first great persecution of Christianity, but already we see that it's attached to this idea that they're a treasonous group, that they're a, a group that is against us because they're not worshipping the gods and therefore um, preventing our, our well-being as a result of this. The second big persecution that took place was under the Emperor Domitian. So this was more towards the back end of the first century. Domitian ruled from 81 to 96, and he's the next one that seems to really single out the Christians for specific persecution. Now again, just a couple of quotes here just to give you a sense of where he's coming from. These are from Eusebius, the church historian. He says, Domitian, having shown great cruelty towards many and having unjustly put to death no small number of well-born and notable men at Rome and having without cause exiled and confiscated the property of a great many other illustrious men, finally became a successor of Nero in his hatred and enmity towards God. He was in fact the second that stirred up a persecution against us, although his father Vespasian had undertaken nothing prejudicial to us. So he's sort of picking up on the work of Nero. He's the next one that's noted as, uh, the second one that's noted as going after the Christians directly. Now he goes to the next level with this. He actually go. he, he tries to track down the source of the problem, actually goes after Jesus' family. And so it says that, but when this same Domitian had commanded that the descendants of David should be slain, an ancient tradition says that some of the heretics brought accusations against the descendants of Jude, so the brother of Jesus, said to have been the brother of the Savior according to the flesh, on the, on the ground that they were of the lineage of David and were, were related to Christ himself. So he actually went after the family. He tried to eradicate Christianity at the source. And so this is a pretty serious Thing that this guy's doing here, and it's actually during this persecution uh, of the under Domitian that we find the writing of the book of Revelation. Now, there are two different schools of thought on when Revelation was written. Uh, one suggestion is that it was written under the Emperor during the Emperor Nero, and then the second one is that it was written during the time of Domitian. Now, these are the two different ideas, and the reason why those two are suggested is because Christians are being persecuted at the time that it's written. It's written directly in response to the persecution that the Christians are facing. And so that's either going to come under Nero or Domitian. Uh, it can only be one of those two. Now, we're going to work with the suggestion that it was written during the time of Domitian, which is, I think, one of the more popularly accepted ideas. Now, Revelation is written to Asia Minor. So it's written to the eastern part of the empire. So all of those churches of Revelation are all found in modern-day Turkey. They all sort of run up the coast of, uh, of the western coast of what is now Turkey. Now, all of those churches uh, presumably were planted by Paul. So when Paul was in Ephesus, he was not actually doing the church planting himself, you know, whereas previously he'd been uh, planting churches in Corinth and different, all these different places, he would be the one to go to the cities. What we find in Paul's third missionary journey, where he's in Ephesus for about three years, is that he seems to be sending people out. He doesn't go himself. He's actually sending people out to do the church planting, which is a much more efficient way to do that sort of thing. So that's presumably where these churches have come from. But by the end of the century, John has become the leading figure 
of these churches. So he's the one who's doing the writing and he's the one who's doing the pastoring of this particular these particular churches. Now, what is happening is that the eastern part of the empire, as I said, really embraced the imperial cult. They took it on lock, stock, barrel. They really went after it. And one place in particular, the city of Pergamum, became something of the capital of the imperial cult or the center of the imperial cult within the region. Uh, of all of the cities that were establishing their own imperial cults, as all of them were, Pergamum really went to the next level with it. They became the center of the worship of the emperor and something of a capital within the eastern part of that city, of, of that region. And so when John writes to them, when you see this letter from Jesus to the church in Pergamum, it's interesting what, what they have to say. So he says, to, this is Revelation 2.12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you re- remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas. My faithful witness was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So what is this throne of Satan? Now, there's been different suggestions, but probably the more likely suggestion is that it's the seat of the imperial throne. Satan, who is Caesar, uh, normally in Rome, well, out in the east, this is where he has his, his throne out here in Pergamum. And so it's their refusal to worship the emperor that Jesus is praising. They've been persecuted for it, uh, but nevertheless, they've remained true to him as opposed to Caesar. And so this is to their credit. This is what Jesus is praising them for in this particular letter. But it's another passage in Revelation that we really see this uh, imperial cult coming through most strongly. And it's a passage that even if you don't know the passage itself, you know what it's about. It's the mark of the beast. Uh, and so typically uh, this is, well, you know, in throughout church history, there's always been different ideas of what the mark of the beast might be. And every generation seems to have their own theories or every time there's a new uh, technology that comes out, it's assumed to be the, the mark of the beast. And so, you know, back in the day it was barcodes or now maybe computer chips or lately it's been a vaccine or, or all these different suggestions as to what the mark might be. And this sort of fear as to, you know, what do we do about this thing? Do we accept this technology <clears throat> knowing that we might just be worshipping Satan as a result of this? Well, I want to suggest that it's probably none of those things. In fact, it isn't any of those things. It seems a bit uh, a bit arrogant to say that 2,000 years ago, John uh, is faced, his churches are faced with all of these present struggles. And John says, hey, you know, I'm going to give you all of this great advice, um, but it's not actually for you. Uh, I'm going to give you these, this letter of comfort, but it's not really for you. It's for people 2,000 years from now. Maybe, maybe you can just hold the letter for them. Uh, I've got nothing for you, but you know, um, I'm really more concerned about 2,000 years from now. It just seems a bit silly. It seems a bit misguided or, or arrogant. Uh, it's got to be something to do with their own particular context, uh, what it's something that they were presently facing themselves. So we'll read the passage and we'll sort of unpack a little bit uh, what this could be. So Revelation 13, 11, it says, when I, Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. Now, what are these beasts that he's talking about? Well, it's it's not presidents of modern countries. It's not the, any of these sorts of people. The first beast that it's referring back to is the emperor. Uh, and so in the previous passage, it's, taught, it's describing this, this main beast. It's talking about the emperor. Um, it's talking about him in the context of Babylon, which was always Rome. And so he's clearly the emperor. That's, that's who it's talking about. But then the second beast who is coming out of the earth it exercised the authority of the first beast. It was a representative of this first beast. Well, who would that be? Well, clearly that's going to be the governor of the region. 
the governor is the one who is appointed by the emperor to rule over a particular area on his behalf. And so he has all of the authority of the emperor. He's the only one in the region who has the power of life and death. He can, he's the only one who can um, hold capital trials. That's who he is. He's the representative of him. And his job is to make sure that the first beast, that the emperor, is honoured. That's his whole job. In fact, there's only two elements to his role. Number one, collect the taxes. Number two, keep the peace. How do you keep the peace? How do you maintain the harmony of the region? Well, you make sure everybody is doing what is required of them, which is primarily worship the emperor. So he's the second beast acting on behalf of the first beast. And in this context, ensuring that they are worshipping properly. Now, Domitian, we need to recognize, was one of those emperors. We talked last week about different emperors who uh, some were very happy to wait till they die to become God, whereas some of them, like Nero, wanted to be God in this lifetime here and now. Domitian was one of these guys. He wanted to be worshipped as a god. He was he he had statues statues of himself set up, and he was the one being he, he wanted to be honored in his time. And so in this context, it makes sense then that the governor's job is to make sure that that is happening and to make sure that he's being worshipped. So it goes on, verse 13, And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honour of the beast. So there's your imperial cult being established who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It's pretty clear what this is dealing with here. It's bringing life to this imagery. It's actually acting on behalf of the emperor. And so if you see me acting, you hear me talking you're going to get a sense of, of what the emperor is because he's working through me. Now, of course, John is talking metaphorically here. This is all metaphorical language. There weren't actual beasts, but it's, it's describing them in terminology that gives you a sense of their true motives. These aren't normal people like you and me. They're beasts. They're ugly, evil, cruel beings that only want the worst for you. So this is typical apocalyptic sort of language. But the, the idea is clear. This is what he's doing. He's setting up an image uh, on, of the emperor, worship that, or you're going to be killed. It's pretty clear cut what, what's happening. So he says in verse 16, it, was, it also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. So what is the 666? Well, that number is Nero. So in the Hebrew, the word Nero in the Hebrew, uh, there's, a, there's a whole sort of mathematical process that goes, or goes along with this. You can, you can Google it, you can look it up. But what it effectively boils down to is that 666 is the numerical value of the name Nero. Now, that because of that, the suggestion might be that this was written during the time of the Emperor Nero, but then... Uh, it could just as easily be Domitian because he sort of styled himself after Nero. He was seen to be something of a manifestation of Nero. He was kind of a reincarnation uh, himself of the Emperor Nero. And so this idea that you receive his mark on your forehead or on your arm, it's not a literal tattoo. It's not some sort of mark that you bear and you know, you've, you, you, you're numbered and so everyone can see straight away that you're, you, you're towing the line. That's not what we're talking about here. The mark on your arm or the mark on your forehead is your actions and your thoughts. So you are, your arm is marked in that you do the things that are required of you for this imperial cult, for the worship of the emperor, and you're marked on your forehead because you think properly. You think 
the way that we expect you to think. You think the right things about the emperor. So your thoughts and your actions conform with the requirements of this imperial regime. And so, so long as you're doing that, you're free to buy and sell. But if you don't, we're going to cut you away, cut you off from good society, which is the typical way that uh, these tyrannical regimes work. They don't have to kill you. They will if they need to, but they don't have to. All they have to do is to cut off your ability to engage with society. They just need to ostracize you. Oh, you don't want to receive, you, you don't want to uh, follow our regime? Well, then you can't buy food. Simple. You can't engage with society. You can't be amongst us. And so we'll just starve you out. We'll make it impossible for you to live. We don't have to kill you, but we're going to put so much pressure on you to the extent that you can't exist that you will have to fall in line. You will have to just simply conform to whatever it is that we require of you. And so for, if we're talking about the mark of the beast in the modern world, well, we see this in every tyrannical regime, every uh, dictatorship, every uh, movement that is, uh, you know, this sort of one-person rule. This is how they operate. We've seen this time and time again throughout history in every part of the world. It's a standard sort of way of keeping control through coercion. And so the mark of the beast in this context was, again, worship the emperor or you can't engage in good society. It's really up to you what you want to do with this. Our final example comes then from the emperor Trajan. So this is something that takes place at about 110 AD. Now, there are other examples sort of over the course of the next few centuries. We're not going to get time to get through them all. But this is a particularly interesting one because it gives us a really good insight into the practices of Christians, Christianity through those early, uh, through that first century. So Emperor Trajan, um, he's, he's ruling at the time and he has a governor in a region called Bithynia. Now the governor's name is Pliny, uh, Pliny the Younger. And we know of him because of his writings. We've actually got a lot of his writings and this is, in fact, this is where this one comes from. And there's a whole collection of letters that we have of him where he's writing back and forth to the emperor. So he's constantly writing back and forth asking for advice on, on every issue under the sun. And one of them in particular is really interesting because he's got this issue in his region of Christians, these Christians that are refusing to worship and engage with the imperial cult. And he really just doesn't know what to do with it. It's not, it's not an issue he's had to face before. And so he's asking the emperor for, the, for whatever advice he can just in order to, to deal with this in a way that's not going to make life too hard for him. I mean, you don't want to go killing every Christian that there is. It's going to cause all sorts of flow-on effects. So what's the best way to deal with this particular situation? So I'll read the letter to you and just we'll sort of unpack it a little bit as we go. He says, having never been present at any trials concerning those who profess Christianity, I am unacquainted not only with the nature of their crimes or the measure of their punishment, but how far it is proper to enter into an examination concerning them. Now, you notice the default setting that people have around Christianity is that it's a crime. It's a superstition. It's not a traditional cult like what we know. They're atheists, they're cannibals, they're incestuous, and... I, ultimately, they're criminals and who, do, who need to be tried and punished for their crimes. So there's, it's, there's not even any concept that Christianity is a religion in the traditional sense. They're the very opposite of that as far as the average person is concerned. And so he goes on, In the meanwhile, the method I have observed towards those who have been brought before me as Christians is this. I asked them whether they are Christians. If they admitted it, I repeated the question twice and threatened them with punishment. If they persisted, I ordered them to be at once punished, for I was persuaded that whatever the nature of their opinions might be, a continuous and inflexible obstinacy certainly deserved correction. So the practice for him was to ask you, are you a Christian? If you admit it, I ask you again, because that's not the answer that I'm looking for. I'm going to give you every chance to deny this because I really just don't want to have to go through the punishment. So are you sure you're a Christian? Really? Are you sure you're a Christian? And if you admit it three times, then we're going to punish you. We're going to do what is ever required. And it's so interesting that he says, look, even if they are innocent, they're just stubborn. They just won't give up on this idea. 
And so stubbornness itself needs to be beaten out of them, much less whatever crime it is that they're guilty of committing. So they're a problem not just just in the fact that they don't worship the emperor, but they're really stubborn about it. They're stubborn even down to their belief in Jesus Christ. So this is a problem. These guys are just really hard to deal with, and that in and of itself is problematic. He says, there were others also brought before me possessed with the same infatuation. Well, just the language around this is fantastic, that this, this infatuation. But being Roman citizens, I directed them to be sent to Rome. But this crime, and it's just this crime spreading, as it is usually the case, while it was actually under prosecution, several instances of the same nature occurred. I love this. They knew that as they persecuted the Christians, it was spreading. And true for every group, the more you persecute it, the more it grows. The best thing you can do to a group is just to leave it alone. Let it fizzle out. Let it just kill itself through infighting and and just their own stupidity and human arrogance. The minute you persecute something, all you do is galvanize it around a common enemy. You You actually strengthen it and it spreads. It grows as a result. And it's in probably in part or maybe even predominantly because of this persecution that Christianity flourished. Christianity came to take over the Roman Empire because they actively, they per, they actively persecuted it. They created this, this problem for themselves. They should have just left it alone. Nevertheless, uh, he knows that the persecution is the problem, but as they always do, they doubled down on stupid and they kept going with it. Uh, an, ex- an anonymous examination was laid before me containing a charge against several persons who, upon examination, denied they were Christians or had ever been so. They repeated after me an invocation to the gods and offered religious rites with wine and incense before your statue for that which for that purpose I had ordered to be brought together with those of the gods and even reviled the name of Christ." And so what happens if you do deny Christ? Well, it's a really simple process. All you have to do is to say a nasty word about Jesus, revile his name, and then offer some incense and some wine to the statue. So there's a statue of the Emperor Trajan. He's a god. Worship him. Honor. And it's, you don't even have to do anything elaborate. Just burn a bit of incense, pour out a bit of wine, and say a nasty thing about Jesus and you're good to go. That's all I'm asking. We're not asking you to do any sort of human sacrifice or something. It's just, no, something really basic. And in fact, I'm not even going to make you walk to do it. it. This was happening so often. He says, I brought the statue up into my off, to my office so that we didn't even have to leave the room. It's right there. Just go and worship him. Just go and here's a bit of wine. Here's a bit of incest. incest. I'll make it easy for you. Just that's all you have to do. Just say a nasty thing about Christ and all of this will go away. Simple. But he says, whereas there is no forcing, it is said, those who are really Christians into any of these compliances. He says it's really, really easy to pick the genuine Christians because they they just won't do it. They can't even just say something nasty about Jesus and just pour out a bit of wine, a bit of incense, nothing to it, just a little gesture They won't even do that. They can't. That's how we pick the real Christians because they won't even go so far as to do something so insignificant as that. He goes on, I thought it proper, therefore, to discharge them. Some amongst those who were accused by a witness in person at first confessed themselves Christians, but immediately after denied it. The rest owned indeed that they had been one of that number formerly, but had now, some above three, others more, and a few above 20 years ago, renounced that error. So in other words, they'd been brought in, said, I I heard you're a Christian. Oh, yes, I was, but I'm not anymore. That was years ago. No, no, no. You, yes, you've heard right, but no, no, no. We're all good. No, that's just a misunderstanding. I'm not a Christian anymore. They all worshipped your statue and the images of the gods, uttering imprecations at the same time against the name of Christ. So they just did the simple little gesture. They just paid their dues and that's all I needed from them. This isn't a big deal. Just a bit of wine, a bit of incense, say a nasty thing about Jesus. You've proven your loyalty. Away you go. 
It's nothing. That's all we're asking you to do here. Now, the reality was that some of the Christians, in fact, did do this, but then later on repented. Um, they or they bribed their way out of doing the test. Like, look, you know, can we just I just give you a bit of money? Can we say that I didn't do it? Um, and then, you know, we make all this go away. And the magistrates, say, yeah, whatever. It's, you know, money talks. So that's fine. Uh, or others just did the worship. They paid the dues and then went back to church on Sunday. So just repented and and carried on. But even Pliny has to note these genuine Christians, the really hardcore ones, they won't even do something as simple as this. But then he goes on, he says, they affirmed the whole of their guilt, still this criminal thing, they affirmed the whole of their guilt or their error was that they met on a stated day before it was light and addressed a form of prayer to Christ as to a divinity, binding themselves by a solemn oath, not for the purposes of any wicked design, but never to commit any fraud, theft or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up after which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to eat in a common harmless to eat in common a harmless meal this is a fascinating bit of passage because it, it's one of the only pieces of of insight we have into what the christians did when they met so it says that they they met on a stated day before it was light so they met on sunday why did they meet before the sun came up well because sunday was a work day you don't have weekends in the ancient world. The Jews took, had Sabbath, sure, but nobody else did anything like that. You don't take weekends because you have to work every day. You take time off during the festivals and that's really it. The rest of the time you're at work. So they meet, they get up before sunrise to meet because they have to go to work. So they meet before sunup and remembering too, you don't, it's not like nine to five. You don't do night shifts because you don't have electricity. You don't work at night because there's no lights. You only work during the daylight hours. So you get up before work and they would come and have a prayer meeting. They'd all get together and they'd pray and they'd worship. They'd offer these prayers, as he says, to Christ as though to a divinity. And then they bind themselves to be Christians, to be people of integrity. I imagine them looking at each other and just saying, are you going to be a Christian today? Are you going to honor Christ? Are you going to live in a way that brings glory to Christ? Yes, I will. Are you going to do the same thing? And I'm just making this pledge to each other. This is where we're going to live a live out a testimony to Jesus. Our lives are going to give bare testimony to him and to his character. And so then they go off to work and then they'd meet afterwards. They'd come back after work and they'd have a meal together. And so church was a meal. They meet together, they'd have, uh, they'd have a feast or, you know, to whatever extent of what they can afford to eat, and that would be how they do church. And so when we see Paul's letters, uh, when he's writing those letters, he's writing them to communities who are doing this, and as a part of the meal, they would have maybe one of Paul's letters read out or they would sing songs or uh, whatever it is that they were doing, this was all happening after work. And so that was their Sunday. That was church. It was a work day like every other day. And there'd be a prayer meeting in the morning and then there'd be a meal afterwards for the purposes of community. He says, however, from this custom they desisted after the publication of my edict by which, according to your commands, I forbade the meeting of assemblies. And so this particular group in Bithynia or within the region stopped doing it. They stopped doing their meetings because of this edict. They, they didn't want to break the law in that way. So what, what do they do? We don't know. We just we don't know what, what it was they did as in, in uh, replacement to this. But nevertheless, that was what he observed of them. And so Pliny's pulling his hair out here because he just doesn't have anything to pin to him. He just doesn't know what it is they've done wrong. He knows that they're, they're criminals. Everyone says they're criminals and they don't worship the emperor. So that's clearly a treasonous problem. But in terms of their everyday behavior, they don't seem like bad people. They're not doing bad things. Um, but everyone seems to hate them. And there's this, they're this strange, superstitious, treasonous group that no one seems to like. So, you know, again, what are you going to make of this? Then finally, he says, after receiving this account, I judged it so much the more necessary to endeavor to extort the real truth by putting two female slaves to the torture who were said to officiate in their religious rites. 
but all I could discover was evidence of an absurd and extravagant superstition. This really blows my mind. He finds two female slaves and he says that these people officiated in their religious rites. They were pastors or elders of this particular church. Now think in the status-conscious Roman Empire in where it all works on hierarchy, the slaves are at the bottom of the table, at the bottom of the barrel. But even lower than a, a slave is a female slave. You don't get any lower than that. That is the absolute bottom of the scum of the barrel. And yet the Christians take them and they say, "You're going to be our pastors. You're going to officiate in our religious rites." which is just in and, of itself, in and of itself absolutely extraordinary. In fact, in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about the role of women in the early church. But, but this is just really quite amazing. And he says, but even after torturing them, all I could find was just an absurd and bizarre superstition. There's nothing guilty about these people, but I just had to do something. Well, anyway, that gives you something of a sense then of, of the challenges the Christians faced in that sort of first century, the first few centuries there of their existence. And really what it all all boils down to was that they were loyal to Jesus and to no other. And they were loyal to the point of death, if that's what it took. Uh, But this was their testimony. This is what it was that really set them apart. It was what really uh, caused them in so many ways to grow and to ultimately fight back to actually win back against those persecuting them and and, and taking over the Roman Empire. Well, anyway, I hope that's been helpful. Uh, next week, we're going to start a new series looking at Paul on Philippi, well, his time in Philippi. Uh, but otherwise, um, have a great week and uh, I'll see you next week. All the best. All the best.